welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. He is the International Director of Arzim and he is a speaker who goes all over the world, um, sharing in church settings but also in academia and in business settings about reasons for our faith. And kind of the mission statement above Arzim is to help thinkers to believe and believers to think. And so we're really excited to have Michael Ramsden with us today, but probably the biggest accolade we could bestow upon him is that he is father to Lucy. Yeah, see? And so Lucy uh, was a part of the family here for about six months, and you know, we were a little bit disappointed that she didn't come, but so pleased to have Michael here. Um, but just to kind of let you know, it says in Proverbs that um, there's this kind of this vein that runs through Proverbs about finding wisdom. And in chapter 16, it talks about how wisdom is worth more than gold and insight worth more than silver. And that is what is on offer to you today, insight about the times in which we live. And so I do encourage you, whatever it looks like for you right now, to posture your heart to just receive from this man to receive what he's about to share. And so I don't know if that looks like getting a notebook, maybe putting your phone onto aeroplane mode to not be distracted because we are so excited and so privileged to have Michael with us. So Michael, please do come up. Um, Can I pray for you? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this man. Um, Thank you for the message that you've given him. Lord Jesus, I pray that as he comes to share, God, would you open our eyes and our ears, Lord Jesus. We do. We long to be wise, God. We long to have your wisdom. And so, God, we just pray for each and every person here, God, that we would see you, we would hear your voice, God, and we would leave this place more equipped to understand the times in which we live and to give a reason for the hope in which we have in you. Amen. All right, well, I was talking to my um, daughter Lucy by text um, a couple of minutes ago, and uh, she was saying, has the service started yet? Where are you? And so for those of you who do know her, um, that is my greatest accolade. Um, she, um, uh, uh, today, uh, she was at the weekend with us in Oxford. Uh, she's currently up at Edinburgh University explaining to me why she's now become a philosophical anarchist. Um, and if you're not sure what that means, I'll explain it to you later, but um, I think I'm to blame for it because... Um, when, I was, uh, when our kids were growing up, I remember sitting around the, the dinner table. Um, Lucy would have been six. My son would have been uh, four. Our youngest at that point couldn't probably even understand what I was saying. And I said, kids, you're never going to impress me by agreeing with me because I've said something. But I will be impressed if you can ask really difficult questions and find an intelligent way to disagree. And Lucy took that to heart. And she's now doing philosophy and literature at Edinburgh University. And she had to do this little survey thing. And she said, Dad, I've been labeled a philosophical anarchist because I don't accept things because someone simply said them. Um, some of my meal times were incredibly challenging, um, but I know that for all of those of you who know her, she wanted me to say hi to you, so I'm saying hi, um, and I'll take your love back. I'm going to be um, trying to talk to you this evening about possibly what I think could be one of the greatest cultural big revolutions that we have seen in three, possibly 400 years. Um, it's big in terms of its global scope. It's incredible how far it goes. It's so disorientating at times, we struggle with it. For some of you who are here, Um, who are much younger than me, I'm going to start describing some things, and you'll be sitting there thinking, yeah, uh, how can anyone not see this? This is obvious, you know, and it's right. What's your problem? If you're over 35, 40, you'll be listening to this thinking, you're nuts. How could anybody possibly believe this? And so after I finish speaking, I'm going to head out the door and then let it fight you out between you um, just to see where it goes. But I want to start, if I can, by quoting some poetry to you. Uh, because of the kind of searches you can do with Google these days, um, it is possible through the, through the use of Google to find out what are people talking about. And in the year 2016, there was one poem that was quoted more in more editorials around the world than anything else that had been published. And we're not talking like by a small margin of 10%. It is massive. This massive, all of a sudden, everyone turning to words which were penned about 100 years ago by a poet called W.B. Yeats. And this is what he said all that time ago. And some of you, if you were at school... Um, depending when you went to school, you may even have been asked to memorize this poem because it was so famous, fell out of use, and now everyone's rediscovered it and everyone's quoting it. And I'm going to be asking the question, why? But here's here's what he said. Turning and turning in a widening guy, in a widening circle. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart and the center cannot hold. 
anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Now, I just want you to think about whatever it is that's bothering you right now, whether it's stuff you see in politics around the world, whether it's stuff you see in economics around the world, whether it's just what you actually notice in terms of how people talk about each other and come back to that line. The best lack conviction. What do people stand for today? Apart from wanting to be liked or wanting to hold office, what do we actually stand for? What is the conviction of the best? While the worst are full of passionate intensity. So I'd like you to imagine now the worst of the leadership you can imagine in this world, wherever that may be, and then ask yourself that question, does the descriptor hold? The center cannot hold. Things fall apart. And we're currently living in one this massive global shift that is so disorientating at times we just think, where is it going? What does it mean? How do we even come to grips with it? Increasingly, you see people being misunderstood and feeling misunderstood everywhere we're going. And which is why, in the times of great distress, we start demanding things like safe spaces. Spaces where we can go, where we feel secure, safe, simply accepted. But there is a challenge and a problem even within that sentiment, because a true safe space is not a place where everyone agrees with you. That's an echo chamber. A true safe space is a place where you're loved and valued. And when people do disagree with you, you know it's not because they're against you, it's because they're for you. That is the ultimate form of safe space. Being with someone who loves you so much, who cares for you so deeply, that they don't just simply pat you on your back and let you go on your way, even if it's going to destroy you. But people who love you so much, at times they're going to put their hand on your shoulder and say, are you sure about this? Have you thought where this is going? That is the place, a place where we all need to be. It is the place where real friendship and love can actually flourish in all of our hearts. Now, what I want to do is I want to speak to you a little bit out of the book of Jonah. And the reason I want to speak to you out of the book of Jonah is it just seems to carry such a heavily prophetic insight to where we are as a culture globally and the kinds of things we're wrestling with. Let me, I'm going to read to you the first few verses of chapter 1. I'm going to read to you the first three verses of chapter 3, and then I'm going to speak out of the book as a whole. It's quite a short book. Um, but here's, let me just give you the first few verses. This is what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship that bound for the port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and complain to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. And Nineveh was a very great large city, and it took three days to go through it. Now, you will notice something from those two readings. The book of Jonah is incredibly poetical in its structure. As a matter of fact, it mirrors itself almost perfectly. If you are really interested in this, just um, and you want to hear me pontificate on this for two hours. If you put my name into Google and Jonah, you'll find a link to a video series I did a couple of years ago um, about some of this stuff. But in chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And in chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. In chapter 1, verse 3, you see God's response to Jonah. In chapter 3, verse 3, you see God's response to Jonah. In chapter 1, verse 5, you see the Gentile response to what is going on. And in chapter 3, verse 5, you see the, non, the Gentile response, the non-Jewish response to what's going on. And it mirrors its way all the way down through the book. So it's a book in perfect, two perfect halves, two chapters mirrored in two parts. And here's the interesting thing, and here's the thing that, that is incredible about the book of Jonah, is the book of Jonah tells the story of a prophet, someone who has insight to what is going on and what is happening, and he runs away with God and he is angry with God. Now, in a world where we are dominated by politics of anger, it's fascinating. The question is, why is Jonah angry with God? Now, there are lots of people who have run away from God in the past. Adam and Eve ran away from God, but that's because they did something wrong, and when God came, they wanted to hide from him. Jonah runs away from God, not because he's done something wrong. Jonah runs away from God because he thinks God has done something wrong. Jonah believes God has morally failed. There is something wrong with God, and he is angry with what he sees, and he's angry with what he's been through. And I want to try and tap into a little bit of that with you. The reason why this is so d dangerous, however, is that the prophet Amos warns about when we turn justice into bitterness. And I want you to think right now about all of the injustice that we feel and experience in this world, and then ask yourself, why has it become so bitter? Why is it that so much of our cry for justice 
is not no longer driven for love, is no longer driven by love, no longer driven by compassion, no longer driven by sacrifice, but is so easily replaced with more baser instincts like revenge. When justice becomes bitterness, we're all in serious trouble. And we're living in a world where people feel increasingly bitter, and there's an increasingly bitter taste in our mouth when we're talking about that which we think is right. But that means we're now motivated by anger and hate rather than love and compassion. And justice, which is now motivated by anger and hate, always results in tyranny. Whatever it overthrows, it replaces with something even worse after it. And there are so many revolutions through this world where we've overthrown one thing only to usher in something even worse in its place. So even though the motive is good, even though the desire is good, even though the, the hope is good, what we reap is not what we intended. And it raises the question, what on earth are we doing in this world? Because what you win people with is also what you win people to. And so if you win people to a right cause but with bitterness and anger, you will win them to that bitterness and anger. And then we begin to increasingly see it, and we're, we're experiencing it, but we don't understand why necessarily. We don't understand even at times why we feel the way we feel and why we seem to struggle with the things that we're actually struggling with. Now, there's just so much I could possibly say here, and I need to finish roughly about 8 o'clock um, rather than 9 o'clock. So I'll take my watch off so I'm not disrupted by time. Um, that's the first step. And then the second step then is to talk you through just, if you like, a general sociological background to how we often analyze culture, and then I want to overlay it on top of Jonah so you can understand where Jonah's coming from. But classically, when we've analyzed culture, or any culture in the world, we often tend to talk about honor cultures, you've probably heard that term, and contrast them with what we call dignity cultures. Now, in an honor culture, the, the thing that we look for in our leadership is honor. The easiest way to think about it is how do you respond when you're insulted? In an honor culture, if I insult you, if I attack you, if I critique you, you want to respond with honor. You want to defend your honor, and you want to reply with honor. And that's what we're actually looking for ultimately in our leadership, an honorable response, even if someone's dishonorable towards you. And we value it, and we treasure it, and we look for it, and we long for it, and we are driven by it. Now, sometimes it can be very negative. Does that make sense? In Europe, honor culture 200 years ago, I come up, I take my white glove, I slap you in the face, tomorrow it's pistols at dawn, 10 paces turn, bang. That's an honor culture. So it's not necessarily, in a sense, a noble thing in and of itself, it's just about how you respond to critique. Does that make sense? You must defend your honor, you must act with honor. Now, that means in honor cultures, if you like, you earn respect through the quality of your life, which is why almost all classical cultures have stories of the spoiled prince, the spoiled princess who grew up, does that make sense? <coughs> Presuming on everyone, no honor, you know, just thinking that they're owed things as a right, and they eventually either die and their better brother or sister takes over, or, makes sense, they end up in exile some way, they learn the hard lesson, they become a better person, then they come back as the ruler they were always intended to be, and there's a happy ending. But it doesn't matter if you're looking at ancient Chinese literature, Arabic literature, Farsi literature, Arabic literature, European literature, South American literature, you'll find those stories everywhere. Now, we would contrast that with dignity-based cultures. Dignity-based cultures are slightly different. In a dignity-based culture, you don't earn respect by the way you act. The argument goes slightly different. It goes like this. You should treat me with respect because of who I am. I'm a person. All persons have dignity. And when someone's attacked, when someone's critiqued, you're looking for a dignified response. Does that make sense? Now, in an honor culture, your response will always be publicly. You must publicly defend your honor. But in a dignity-based culture, I may be attacked and say nothing public at all. And I may invite you quietly to one side, take you to a room, sit you down, and work it out with you. And having worked it out privately with you, away from the glaze of everyone else, then step back out into the public realm and say, okay, guys, we've sorted it out, we've talked on, let's move ahead. And that will be seen as a dignified response. Does that make sense? I acted with dignity. I responded in a dignified way to the criticism leveled against me. And we value that, we esteem that, we look for that in our leadership. Now, in Western Europe, we're a blend between the honor and dignity culture classically, and that's partly because of the influence of the Christian gospel on this country and how it shaped our historic culture. But we are now increasingly living in what sociologists are calling a victim culture. Now, in a victim culture, it's very, very different. We get our sense of worth very often by the historical or present grievance that we've gone through. And the more pain that you have and the more grievance that you have, the more status that you have. I'll give you an example. I was speaking... In, in a country I'll leave unnamed, and someone was saying, Michael, you need to understand our country because X hundred years ago we suffered this, this, and this, and then we lost our land, and we lost that, and that informs, you know, 
Does that make sense? And the narrative is we have 200 years of, of, of oppression and grievance, and therefore my victim status means that I have more to say on this than maybe you do. And I sort of rather naughtily smiled and said, you know, I know what you sort of mean. I'm half Greek Cypriot. Our country's been under foreign occupation for two and a half thousand years. We've been under control of the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Arabians, or whatever, even the British. You know, and as a matter of fact, the land that I should have inherited that would have made me a multimillionaire is currently under occupation by the Turkish army since 1974, and it's all been taken away from us. You know, we've, we've, we've had this problem for two and a half thousand years. And now they're suddenly looking at me thinking, wow, because now they have to kowtow to me. Does that make sense? I have a two and a half thousand years of victim history of oppression and loss. That means that my status is greater than theirs because I've got way more historical grievance than them. I've got 10 times more. And we're locked in a culture of competitive victimhood. It is now what gives you your status. Now, I don't know, how many of you have seen the original Superman movie? Have any of you ever seen that? 1980s? Don't be ashamed if you saw that first Superman. Put your hand up high. Okay, shame on you. You shouldn't be wasting your time watching garbage like that. <laughs> I only watch films because I have to do a lot of cultural analysis and think about these things. That's why I have to sacrifice my time watching movies. But, but let me ask you this. The original Superman, the few of you who saw it, what were his weaknesses? Apart from kryptonite, what were Superman's weaknesses? And the answer is nothing. The original Superman is morally perfect, rationally perfect, physically perfect, kind, gentle, understanding, listening person. He reminds me of me in so many ways. <laughs> he, he, was, he was perfect. How many of you have seen Man of Steel, the millennial Superman remake? Any of you seen that? How does that movie start? Superman is on a boat, lost in a thick fog. He feels cosmically lonely, cosmically abandoned, lost by his parents, detached from the culture, not at home, suffering, misrepresented, can't deal with the expectation or the pressure. Superman, in order to be a superhero today, needs to have a victim narrative. Otherwise, he doesn't have that status. It's not about honor and dignity. It's about how much pain and loss have you experienced. And he, we now need to draw on that in order to give him that status and make him a hero. I don't know if you watch Marvel movies, but think about it. Every single Marvel superhero has a victim narrative. That's why they're a superhero. They've all been betrayed, hurt, abandoned, abused, and so on. Every single one of them. Just think about it. Even the most boring superhero ever created, Captain America, <laughs> even when they have to make the sequel for that movie, in order to make him a superhero and make him a viable superhero today, what needs to happen? He must become a victim, betrayed by his country, betrayed by those around him, misunderstood, misrepresented, damaged. He needs that narrative. He needs that historical grievance narrative in order to claim special status in our culture. It has become the dominant way of thinking now in so many parts of the world. When I first started thinking about this, I thought this was particularly like an Anglo-US problem. And then I spoke for the European Parliament and I got mobbed by MPs and I thought, okay, it's a European problem. And then I went to Asia and spoke to a whole bunch of political and business leaders from 27 different Asian countries and then got mobbed by them. And they said, how do you understand Asian culture so well? And then I thought, well, actually, I'm crazy. I'm from the Middle East. This is the dominant narrative of the Middle East. It has been now for centuries. And then I was even more surprised when I went to Africa and sat down with a guy who was working with, with all these different heads of state. And we also started talking about this. It was going to be a half-hour conversation. At the end, he said, you understand African politics. You need to go to every single country. I have a Boeing. I have my own private Boeing. I'll fly you from country to country to meet every head of state to explain this. And I haven't done that for environmental reasons. No, 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 no. <laughs> you see, I'm already what's called virtue signaling to you to get you to think that I'm better than I am. It is become now this tragically powerful narrative. And the reason it's dangerous is this. When the victim narrative takes over, it goes like this. Look, I've been hurt, but I'm, I, I'm kind inside, basically. I'm loving inside once you understand me. Everything I do is motivated by love, even though I have all of this damage. But if you dare disagree with me, the only explanation for that is hatred. So everything I do is motivated by love. But if you disagree with me, as the biggest victim in this room, then the only thing that explains your disagreement is a hate narrative. So you must be anti-me, whatever it is. You're racist against my Greek background, or that you're prejudiced against the fact that you think you've lost more land than me. Or does it make sense? And if you, not, not only that, you're not even allowed to speak about my situation. Unless you're part of my group, you have no right, no status to make any comment about it. If you want to join my group, you have to advocate my complaint more vociferously and more militantly than I do. And if you do that, then you can be co-opted into my group. 
That makes sense? And now I'll grant you the status so you can be part of my group, Group A, let's call it. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, that means if you're a leader and you're running for political office, what you need to do is calculate the number of different victim groups in your, in your country. You calculate the number of votes in every one of those groups, and then you start to advocate their complaints more militantly than them. And if you do the maths right, you'll win every single time. Which means we now have a political leadership globally that's locked us into this vortex of grievance. We're all involved in this competitive victimhood. We're all trying to out-victimize each other about who has the greatest grievance, because whoever has the greatest grievance wins, and then my rights trump yours. And you have to listen to me, or I have to listen to you, depending on who wins that narrative. Which is why, in this culture, if you ask who are the statesmen, who are the stateswomen, who are the people who are bigger than the politically immediate, we can't think of anybody. If you were around 30, 40, 50 years ago, and I say, who are the states people of the world? Who are the people who are bigger than petty politics? You could probably start reeling off names of people who had risen above the immediate and had this huge overarching power to speak to culture. And they could say to one group, what happened to you is wrong, and that's terrible. But that doesn't justify you doing that terrible thing over there. And they can qualify it. But in a victim narrative, you can't do that. Because as soon as you say, hey, what happened to you is wrong, and it's terrible, it doesn't justify. Well, at that point, you're disagreeing. So you're not really part of them anyway. So if I were to ask you, who were the statesmen? Who were the stateswomen today? People's minds go blank. We start to struggle to think of that kind of level of leadership. We even can't struggle to imagine that it's actually possible. And so we're locked into this. And the trouble then is, is that in order to get status, we all have to start holding on to our past pain and our past grievance. It's what defines us. It's what helps us. And we divide the whole world into the oppressed and the oppressor. And if I'm the oppressed, then I start saying to you, unless you agree with me and unless you hate the people I hate, then you're part of the oppressive regime that needs to be overthrown. So you only now have one of two choices. You jump in with me and you agree with everything, all of the hatred that I have for everyone else. If any of you have lived through and seen a very painful divorce, you know what I'm talking about. You talk to, you know, to one party and they basically you conclude they were married to the devil. Then you talk to the other party and you conclude that they must have married Satan. Does that make sense? And then they start to vie for your friendship. Unless you agree with me in my hatred of the other person, then you're not really my friend. It's the same narrative. But when it happens on a global platform and at a national level, all of a sudden, it means that we're now suddenly locked into this incredible politics of anger. And this is actually Jonah's story. This is Jonah's problem. Jonah lives at the time of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire, many ancient historians would say, was the most evil empire ever to have lived on the face of the planet. I mean, huge. Imagine if Islamic State had the power of the American military machine. Okay, so imagine you could take IS and give it the American military machine. What would the world look like? Well, that was Jonah's world. One of the most evil regimes that ever existed on the face of the planet is now at a superpower status. Jonah's part of a tiny, estranged, oppressed minority. And these people are doing evil things and they're doing bad things. And, <laughs> and the question is, what's going on? Now, just imagine this. God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go to the Assyrians and tell them that their great evil, the stench of their evil acts, has risen all the way up to heaven. Now, imagine the following thing with me. I want you to imagine the person you dislike the most. I'm going to strengthen it. Maybe even hate. Now you can sit here pretending that there's nobody you don't like and there's nobody that bothers you, okay? In which case we'll deal with that sin later, okay? That's called denial. Let's deal with those of you who can. I want you to imagine the person who's caused you the most amount of pain, the most amount of hurt, and really, it really bothers you when you think about them. And then I want you to imagine that God comes before you and says, hey, you know that person who really bothers you, disturbs you, makes your life a misery? Well, the stench of their moral acts is so bad, it's risen all the way up to heaven, and I hate it. Now, how would you feel if God himself came to you and endorsed your moral condemnation of them? Does that make sense? How would you feel? Be honest justified someone said it you're gonna this I mean, that would be amazing wouldn't that be good for god to come and say hey you think this person's awful well i think they're even worse hey the stench of their moral acts has risen all the way up to heaven and i wanted to go and speak against them now this is the amazing thing with victim culture normally in a victim culture have you ever got angry with someone and said something and the very next day woke up and wish you hadn't because you know they it was wrong 
and maybe you even exaggerated or made up stuff about them which wasn't quite right because you're that angry. Well, in a victim culture, normally when you wake up the next day, you don't feel bad about having made things up about them because your anger is so strong you feel justified in your false accusation. You feel they deserved everything that you said, and as a matter of fact, everything you did say and you made up could have happened and indeed should have happened, and if it makes them guilty and everybody hate them, that cause is so right it doesn't matter what you've done. So you actually feel good about it. So God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, the people you hate and despise, their evil is so much it's risen up to heaven. And Jonah runs away. Jonah doesn't say, great, I'm going to go and give these guys the moral lecture of their life. He runs away. Why does he run away? Why? Now, in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, after Jonah goes and gives them his difficult message, you read, when God saw how they turned from their evil ways, that's the Assyrians, because they hear Jonah's message and they all repent, they all say they're sorry, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Now, the translation here is hard to capture the strength of the language. Where it says Jonah became angry, it literally means he became so angry he could be physically sick. I don't know if you've been so angry, so upset, so disturbed, you could literally throw up in anger as you're talking about it. That's how angry Jonah was. And he's angry with God. It was very wrong. Why? Jonah says to God, Lord, isn't this when I said when I was still at home? That's why I tried to fall stall by fleeing to Tarshish. I know you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. What is Jonah's complaint about the God of the Old Testament? He points his finger in God's face and says, you're too kind, you're too forgiving, you're too compassionate, I hate you. Jonah didn't want the Assyrians to repent of their sins, say they're sorry, and be forgiven by God. Jonah wanted them destroyed, and here's the problem with cries for justice. Our earthly cry for justice so often descends into a desire for revenge. Have you ever noticed that? Jonah wants revenge. Jonah doesn't want them to forgive, be forgiven. Jonah wants them destroyed. Look, when you're watching a movie, what do you want to happen to the bad guy at the end of the film? Do you want them caught, put on trial, and sent to prison for a very long time? Is that what you want? Be honest. Okay, if you, for some of you have been, I think, more, you're saying no. Why not? What do you want to happen to the bad guy? Die. How do you want them to die? Horribly. Okay, look, they can't just trip over their shoelaces and then get hit by a bus and bang, it's like gone in an instant. They have to know they're going to die. They have to emotionally appreciate they're going to die. And then they have to die as slowly as possible and help, hopefully, more than once. Okay, that's what they deserve. I remember years ago going to see GoldenEye when it was premiered in this country. And if you haven't seen that James Bond movie, it, the way it ends is this giant lake drains out of this island to reveal this massive concrete basin. And suspended over the concrete basin over the middle of it on metal wires is this giant metal pin. And it's basically a huge radar to control a satellite in space. And where does the final battle happen? James Bond and the bad guy are fighting on the metal needle suspended above this huge concrete bowl, hundreds of meters above, above the ground. And it looks like James Bond's going to die. No one's died almost as many times as James Bond, but of course he doesn't. And then there's a great reversal, and now the bad guy's hanging by his fingertips, and James Bond suddenly is thinking, am I meant to save him now? Because I was trying to kill him, but I am an English gentleman, so you know, do I sort of like rescue him? And then the bad guy, he lose, loses his grip, and he starts falling to earth. Okay. He's got a long way to go. It's hundreds and hundreds of meters. So you have a wide angle camera and you see the body going ah, like that down to the earth. You have a, a, a view from the needle looking down and you can see the body big going ah, getting smaller and smaller as it rushes to the ground. You have a, a camera angle from the ground looking up as the body starts rushing down, getting bigger and bigger. Ah, then you have the wide angle view. Ah, then from the camera now, looking down, the guy's getting really tiny. Ah! And then from the ground, you can see the body rushing up. Ah! And it moves between this thing, so you can get to see it happen in multiple angles, multiple times, and it takes him at least a minute to fall. So you know he really appreciates the fact he's going to die. And then he lands on a solid concrete surface from a 300-meter fall on the back of his head. Now, I will confess I have no medical training, but I have reason to believe if you fall 300 meters and land on your head, 
you're dead. Is he dead? Oh, no. He opens his eyes just in time to see a massive explosion release the giant metal needle, which is now suspended directly above him. Now you see the massive metal needle rushing down to the ground. You have the wide-angle view as the guy is screaming, ah, as it's soothing something down. You've got a view from his eyes looking up, and you can see this giant metal stake getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You have a camera on the metal stake rushing down to the earth, and you can see his head getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You have the wide-angle view, the ground view, the aerial view, and then all of a sudden, a close-up view, so you can just in time to see the metal skewer go through his mouth and pin him into the ground. And at this point, the whole audience stood up and started clapping like this. We talk about justice and so often what we're looking for is revenge. We want our enemies to die painfully, slowly, and as horribly as possible. And that's what Jonah wanted. Jonah knows the God he worships specializes in forgiving bad people. And the reason Jonah is so angry with God is he's saying, God, you have morally failed as a judge. The guilty are meant to be punished and the evil people are meant to be destroyed and you have failed. So when God says to Jonah in chapter 4, is it right for you to be angry? He's so angry he says nothing. The second time he's asked the question, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah says, it is right. I'm so angry I wish I was dead. So Jonah maintains his anger against God all the way through. So you would think this would be a very sad story. The story of a prophet who runs away from God, is given a message he doesn't want to give, and at the end of the book is mad as anything with God, pointing the finger right in God's face and saying, I hate you and you're wrong. And yet, how does the book end? Well, if you haven't read it, the way the book ends is God says to Jonah, well, what I expect God, what I would say to Jonah if I were God would be like, Jonah, I've had enough of you. There are other people out there who would like this job. I'm going to give it to them instead. God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, should I not care for these people? There are hundreds of thousands of people in this city and a whole truckload of animals as well. Should I not have compassion on them? Should I not care what happens to them? And the story ends with God showing the same kind of grace, compassion, and forgiveness to Jonah as he's shown to the Ninevites. And the question is, will Jonah realize that he needs forgiveness just as much as they do? That the anger and hatred in his heart needs just as much dealing with and forgiveness as what he sees in theirs? Will Jonah realize the situation he's actually in? You see, in a world where we talk about victimizing all the wrong that we've done, the thing that we fail to understand is when we hold on to that pain, it never helps us. Even when you're dealing with cases of extreme wrongdoing, like rape. When you counsel a rape victim, you don't say to them, oh, it doesn't matter, get over it. Because that's both wrong and it doesn't help. And you don't say to them, look, just forget about it and do the best you can. That's also wrong and it doesn't help. What you try to say to them is, look, even if you have to live with the, live with the shadow of this for years, decades, whatever it is. Even if you have to live with the reality of it, this doesn't define you. This terrible, awful, horrible thing which happened does not define who you are. You are more than that. You have a value and a beauty and a preciousness, independent of what happened to you. And secondly, don't allow this to determine your future. If you allow this terrible thing that befell you and happened to you to determine your future and direct the rest of your life, you'll allow this person to steal your future as well as your past. And so you want to put them, even if it's on a parallel track, on a different, different side of the track. Does that make sense? You want them to understand that there's a dignity and a worth and a value to their existence, and they are valued in a different way, even with all of the pain that they have to live with. And you're also trying to say your life doesn't have to be controlled now by what this person did in the past. It can actually look different. You're trying to instill that sense of hope, which is why you don't teach them, hang on to your bitterness, hang on to your anger, hang on to your pain, hang on to your grievance. It's good for you. You're trying to teach them you're going to have to find a way to move beyond that, and we're with you. Maybe it will take weeks, maybe it will take months, maybe it will take years, maybe it will take decades. But whatever it takes, we're with you. We're with you in this for the long haul. We're with you in this so that you can be the person that you're intended to be and you can fully experience that which you're meant to experience. And that's exactly how God loves us. He doesn't 
He doesn't ignore the pain and the brokenness we're in. Jesus Christ came into this world and did nothing wrong. He was nailed to a cross for a crime he did not commit. He was 100% innocent of everything, everywhere, at all times. He is, in that sense, the ultimate victim. And as he hangs on the cross with being insulted, mocked, abused, what does he say? Okay, guys, you will now feel the full vent of my wrath. Because I'm going to come back with a couple of hundred thousand angels, and it's no problem because I can make as many as I want. And I'm going to really teach you guys what it is to suffer. What does he say? He hangs on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it is the only way to break the cycle of hatred, anger, bitterness, and everything else. He offers to change who we are. There is something profoundly humbling about turning to Christ. It, it helps you understand that no matter how much wrong has been done to you, that you've also been forgiven the wrong that you have done before God. And he can change you. And it changes the narrative. It changes everything. It can change the course of a history, of a, of a nation. It can change how they feel. Earlier this year, I'm looking at Jim because I forget time. Was it this year when we were in Northern Cyprus? Yes. He travels so much as well. He's just, much, just as jet-lagged as I am. Um, he was my young memory, and now I've killed it. But I think earlier this year, I had a, I was invited to speak in a, in a part of Cyprus that my family once owned. And when I was invited to speak there to people from 147 different countries at this big conference, I can remember thinking, it, it didn't feel like a big deal. It really didn't. And then as I crossed the militarized border and I'm now standing on this land, and I'm thinking, wow. So much has been taken from us, even in the immediate past, let alone the historical past. And then in the audience, someone puts up their hand and they say, how do you feel about speaking here and standing here knowing that actually all of this should be rightfully yours and it was removed by force and there's been no justice, no compensation, no justice, no nothing? How do you feel about that? And now I'm thinking, how, how do I feel about that? And the answer is, the best answer I could give was to say, well, I want to feel about this way and about the people here the same way God feels about them. And how does God feel about them? Well, the same grace and mercy and forgiveness God gave me, he wants to extend to them. And so, I hope that everybody here may come to know that grace, that peace, and that forgiveness from God. Because I know without that in my life that I couldn't be doing what I'm doing. That doesn't mean I wouldn't fight to put it right. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't want to correct it, but it can't be out of hatred for them. It has to be born out of a love and a compassion that can actually change everything. And when you begin to see that it is through this compassionate pleading that God changes the course of history, it will change, it will change your life. There's a statue in, the, in central London in Piccadilly Circus that most people have no idea what it is. They've honestly got no idea. Most tourists take their picture in front of it thinking they're taking a picture in front of Eros. Okay, Eros is the god of love and lust. And, you know, they like to stand on it. You know, they, one person you know, by the bow and arrow, one person about to be shot because they think it's like a cupid figure. You know, and then they're going to be ping, you know, because it's a fat, chubby cherub with a bow and arrow. It's amazing, but nobody knows what that statue is because that is not a statue of Eros in Piccadilly Circus. It is a, a picture, it is a statue of Anteros, Eros's lesser-known brother. Anteros is the opposite of Eros. That's why we have the Antarctic and the Tarctic. Tarctic means bear, Antarctic means no bear. They went to one polar cap and they found bears there. They went to the other one, there were no bears, hence the Antarctic. Okay, no bears. Anteros is the opposite of Eros. It, is, it represents selfless love. That statue was erected in London, in memory of a guy called Lord Shaftesbury. In his 20s, when Lord Shaftesbury heard the, cross, the Christian gospel for the first time and realized both that Jesus Christ loved him and would come back to judge the living and the dead, he realized he would have to live his life differently. And he lived his life in selfless service for his country. He's sometimes known as the father of modern-day childhood. He argued and created laws saying that kids shouldn't be sent to, to work down the mine. They needed schooling. They needed provision. 
There should be meals if their parents can't afford for them. He changed labor laws. He changed child laws. He changed so much that happened in this country. He literally changed the legal landscape of Britain. And when he died, the people wanted to erect a statue that, we, that he may not be forgotten. But they didn't want to erect a statue of him. That felt too narcissistic. They wanted to erect a statue which would help them remember what he had done, this huge sacrifice he had made. And so they erected a statue of Anteros. The official name of that charity is the Angel of Christian Charity. Sorry, the official name of that statue is the Angel of Christian Charity, the Angel of Selfless Love, someone who gave themselves in service to others to help and better everyone else around them. When you realize how much God is willing to forgive and change and transform the human heart, you can't help but live differently for him, and it begins to change the cycle. We cannot fall into this victim mentality. Even sometimes as Christians, we sometimes think everybody's against us. They don't like what we stand for. They don't like what we, what we uh, proclaim. They don't like us, and, you know, and everyone's against us. And then we fall into that mentality, and then we then feel justified and feeling angry to the world. But that's, that's not acceptable. Jesus is not asking us to hate the world. We're to be different, but he's asking us to love it. He wants us to see change it. He wants us to be praying on our knees, saying, Lord, change history. We have to fall in love with prayer again. I saw Dunkirk recently, and I've also seen The Darkest Hour. I don't know if you've seen those two movies. They're amazingly powerful movies, but sadly deficient in one very profound area because our spiritual history has been airbrushed out. Hundreds of thousands of troops were pinned on the beach of Dunkirk. Actually, 300,000 British, and then I can't remember how many French and Polish and various others, but over 300,000. It represented something like 95% of the fighting force of the United Kingdom. If they were wiped out, that was the end of that conflict. And if they had been wiped out in 1940, this world would not look like it does now, I can tell you that much. The trouble was there was no rescue plan, and when Churchill asked for what's called a depletion report, okay, if we try to rescue them, how many people will we lose and how many will we rescue? The answer is, if you send over thousands of people to rescue them, you'll lose all of them, and out of the 30,000, you'll only rescue, th out of the 300,000, you'll only res rescue 30. So the better part seemed to be, let's just surrender. But William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, in 1940, felt moved in his spirit, and he approached Winston Churchill and the king. And he said, can we call for a national day of prayer? And a national day of prayer was called. If you get on Google, you can see people streaming into churches up and down the length and breadth of this country. They didn't know what they were praying for. They just knew they needed to pray. Because they couldn't share that they wanted to secretly rescue those guys. That ruined the whole thing. The problem they had was that the sea was rough and the skies were clear. Little boats couldn't safely cross the channel, and even if they got across because the skies were scared, the boats could be picked off from the air. So a national day of prayer was called, and here's what people prayed. They didn't pray, Lord, vindicate us. Lord, we're right and they're wrong. Destroy our enemies. It was a national day of humiliation. That was its official title. It was a national day of humiliation. The country was asked to come on its knees and say, God, we're sorry for trusting in our own strength. We're sorry for being so proud. We're sorry for being self, so self-sufficient. We're sorry that we have forgotten you and forgotten that you're the center of our life and we're asking you, forgive us, Lord. Forgive our hearts. Forgive what we've done. We're sorry. Remember your mercy. Within the next couple of days, a thick cloud cover moved over the British Channel and it was the stillest ocean, sea in over a generation. And thousands of tiny boats went across, and they didn't rescue 30,000. They rescued over 300,000 people from that beach and brought them back. In 1946, when William Temple had the opportunity to address the nation, he cited this as proof of one of the greatest miracles that that, that generation would ever see, that God stepped in and changed them. We need to understand that God's love is so much that if we will come before him, he will change the course of history. He's done it before, and he can do it again. We've been singing about it. We need to understand that he can take lives and he can take some of you and some of you have been put in positions of authority and influence and he wants you to use it as he used Shaftesbury. But there's one other story I want to share with you before I finish. Because some of you will be sitting here thinking this is amazing but I'm just too small to be part of this. 
you know, it's, it's amazing what God's talking about. It's amazing what you're talking about. But I, I'm not, I don't think of myself as a great prayer warrior. I'm not, a, I'm not some kind of great influential person with huge influence. So what can I do? I have the huge privilege of working with a guy called John Bechtel. I absolutely love him. And he's in his late 70s now. John Bechtel's family was one of the last families to be forcibly expelled from China when communism swept in, destroyed the church, killed most of the Christians, and threw all the foreign missionaries out. So he ended up in Hong Kong. While he was in Hong Kong, he began to notice just how many kids there were with nowhere to go. Home kids in the summer, just nothing for them, nowhere to go, nothing to do. And he felt he should set up a camp, a summer camp, to help do stuff with these kids. Well, he kept looking at different pieces of land, and he couldn't find anything. Every time he found a perfect piece of land, he tried to raise the money. He couldn't raise the money. And then one day, a little-known American evangelist came to Hong Kong called Billy Graham. And he had a businessman in tow with him who ran the Billy Graham organization. And this American businessman went on a tour of Hong Kong with John Bechtel, and John showed him this, this site and shared with him the vision to take this site and transform it to serve these kids. And then this businessman said words that every European Christian wants to hear from an American. I'm going to go back to America and raise all the money you need. <laughs> so he went back to America, and three months later, sent a letter to John Bechtel. John, when John opened the letter, inside the letter was another letter. It was another envelope and a, and a note. The note said, Dear John, this has not gone as well as I hoped. As a matter of fact, only one person has given me a gift to help with your camp, and I enclose it with my letter. So now he opens the second letter. It's from a 12-year-old girl. Dear Mr. Bechtel, I've heard about your desire to set up this camp to serve all these children over there. I'm enclosing $1, my pocket money that I've been saving up, and I'd like you to use it to buy the camp. Yours sincerely, Belinda Holmes. Well, John was so angry, he almost threw it in the bin. And his wife said, John, this guy promised you'll get all the money you need, not all the money you want. You should give this girl's letter to the owners of that, of that site and ask them to sell it to you on her terms. He went to the caretaker. He said, I want to make an offer to buy this building. The caretaker said, fine. John handed over the letter with the dollar bill in it, and the guy threw it back at him. And then John, who's a feisty kind of guy, said, listen, you're legally obliged to pass on every offer made for a property. If you don't pass the offer on to the owners, then I'm going to bring the court in here. And the guy, the caretaker was fine, if that's the way you want it. And he passed it up to the owners. The owners were so moved by the girl's letter and by the nature of the vision, they agreed to sell that site for one dollar. Now, if John Bechtel was speaking to you now, at this point, he would put up a picture behind him of the largest stadium in Hong Kong. And in it are 80,000 of the people who gave their lives to Christ at that camp. A couple of decades after he bought the camp, he was speaking in a church, and he was telling this story. And after he'd finished speaking, a woman in her 30s came up and said, Mr. Bechtel, my name is Belinda Holmes, and I was the 12-year-old girl who sent you my money all those years ago. So John sent the elders of the church out into the car park because everybody was leaving and said, I want you to get everybody back in, get everybody you possibly can back into the church. So they all came piling back in. And John then introduced them to Belinda Holmes, now 32, the 12-year-old girl who 20 years earlier had sent him that letter. He suggested that they should <coughs> excuse me, take up a collection to send her to Hong Kong so she could see what her money had done. Well, apparently they raised enough money to send her, her family, and half of the British Army back to Hong Kong. <laughs> One dollar. That's all she had. All she had was one dollar and a sense from God that that's what God wanted to do with her one dollar. So she sent it. We, we're missing out so much on what God wants to do in our life because we think we have so little to offer. We think, well, what does my little prayer count? What does my 10 pounds a month matter? How, how does this change anything? And the answer is we worship a God who specializes in taking small fish and small loaves and multiplying them to feed thousands of people. That's the difference it makes. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I think he could have made a meal out of nothing for 10,000 people. He doesn't need anything. He could have made it from nothing. But he delights when we take the little we have and we put it in our hands he multiplies it for his purpose. We need to fall back in love with the vision of a compassionate and a gracious God who is longing to move and act when we turn and seek him with all of our life. 
he's looking for people who will be completely committed to him and his vision and give themselves to it. So I would, I would urge you, don't write yourself off. Don't, don't think you have too little to bring. Make the investment of your time and your energy and your money so that you can both be used and then just learn how to give. It's, it's not much more complicated than that. My daughter Lucy loved coming to do the vision, what's it called? Vision, vision course here. I was going to say vision mission, that sounded vision course here. She absolutely loved it. So some of you, maybe that's what you're meant to be doing. You're meant to be signing up for that vision course. Maybe you can't do it right now, in which case pay for someone else to go do it. Okay, enable them to go. But we need to stop making excuses about how busy we are and how little we can do. During that mission, that Lord Shaftesbury, William Wilberforce, all of those guys, they all lived together at the same time. They, I say, they totally transformed not just the course of this country, but of the world. There was a preacher that you probably never heard of called Dawson. He was up in Birmingham. Um, he inspired the building of hospitals, hospices, schools, uh, libraries, civic halls, music halls, uh, all kinds of stuff to serve the people of Birmingham. He was known once as the preacher of the civic gospel, but when he used to preach the gospel, he used to finish with these words. He used to say, don't ask what can I do, ask what more can I do? Lord, what more would you have me do? What more time would you like me to give? What more effort would you like me to put in? What, what more are you asking of me? Ask what more can you do? Lord, what more are you asking from me? And ask him, it is gonna be the most thrilling thing in your life. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, and you have been held back from committing your life to Christ for no other reason than you just think the vision is too small, I would invite you to think again about, it's not just simply the history of this nation, but how it's changed the world. When people have fallen in love with Christ and sought him on their knees, it's incredible what God has done in and through them. I'm wondering if I can just pray for you. We can't give in to this victim narrative. We have to find a way to overcome it. We have to model what it means to forgive. We are the most forgiven people on the earth. We need to learn to be more forgiving. And then we need to find a way to give ourselves to that which really counts and will ultimately change. I wonder if I can just, just take a moment to bow our heads and come before God. God, I want to thank you for the men and women in this room. Lord, the people that you know and love and value. Lord, you know each person in this room by name. And you are calling them by name. You have a purpose and a vision and a mission for each one of them. Lord, I want to pray for those who are hurt and broken and betrayed. And Lord, I pray, Father, that the pain and the injustice they've suffered will not manifest itself in bitterness. But, Lord, that somehow in you and through you, Lord, they may discover that love that can heal their heart and set them on a new course for you. And, Father, Lord, I pray, Lord, for all of us. Lord, we want to be involved in what you're doing. Lord, we need you to move again. Father, we come before you and we pray that we may know your forgiveness in our life afresh. Lord, may we not buy into this hate-filled narrative, but Lord, may we live something different and remind us again how much you have forgiven us. And Lord, give each of us a vision, no matter how small it may seem, of the mustard seed that you want us to plant in other people's lives. And Father, Lord, help us to trust you for the growth, Lord, that you promise will come. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Adam, come in. Thank you so much.